Welcome to the Public Morality. The 2020 election produced the highest voter turnout since 1900, with roughly two-thirds of Americans going to the polls, was all the more amazing given the nation was in the grips of a coronavirus pandemic. What may be more encouraging news for most Americans and American democracy has been bad news for one of the nation's two political parties. Riding on the waves of unsubstantiated claims of voter irregularities, state legislators, where the Republican Party hold majorities, have taken measures to make voting more difficult. But what is motivating the anti-democratic measures may be less about the rules that Democrats stole the 2020 election than the hard political truth. The Republican Party is a party in decline. What we are witnessing may be more comprehensive than poll taxes, literacy tests, or grandfather clauses, because it hides under the cover of democracy. Republican-led legislatures are attempting to minimize the most fundamental right of an American citizen, the right to vote. To begin the conversation, I'm joined by Bobby Hoffman. Hoffman is Deputy Director of Democracy Division at the ACLU. Bobby Hoffman, welcome to the Public Morality. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, to properly frame this conversation, aside from the years between 1965 and 2013 when the Voting Rights Act was enforced, would it be fair to suggest that America since its inception has always engaged in some form of voter suppression. So, it's, so what we're seeing now is more of a norm. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, in you know, obviously, the foundings of the nation, uh, only white property-owning males had the opportunity to register and cast a ballot. Uh, we've seen uh, an expansion since then. Um, you know, starting with the Fifteenth Amendment, providing the right to vote uh, to black men, uh, to the Nineteenth Amendment in nineteen twenty, expanding the right. Uh, to women. Um, but, you know, during, um, you know, really throughout that period of the founding of the nation to 1965, we saw, um, you know, some great expansions um, in, in access to the ballot, but we've also seen incredible contractions. Um, so, for instance, in, in response to the 15th Amendment, um, where, you know, throughout the South, uh, a little over half a million Black men uh, became voters. Um, you know, in Miss Mississippi, for instance, had two black men elected to the United States Senate. Um, at the time, uh, you know, we saw uh, a high rate of uh, black men registered to vote in, in Mississippi. It was at its height 90% uh, during Reconstruction. Um, and then Jim Crow hits. And we saw an incredible contraction through literacy tests, poll taxes, felony disenfranchisement, and other actions uh, to create voter suppression uh, that eventually knocked down the, the registration rate of black men in Mississippi to 6% in 1892. Um, so throughout the time period, uh, while we've seen uh, expansions and contractions um, in the right to vote, you know, really starting in 1965 through the election of uh, America's first black president in 2008, uh, we saw an incredible expansion of uh, the opportunity to vote in America. It has been a consistent talking point from my perspective, primarily among the uh, members of the Republican Party, uh, 
to keep repeating voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud, so that it becomes a solution in search of a problem. And, and given your work at the ACLU, how did you see that? Uh, yes, that is certainly the case. And, um, you know, we're really seeing um, the impact of baseless claims of voter fraud uh, kind of occurring um, throughout the country and the, the negative impact it's having on election laws and, you know, what we saw in March 6th at the Capitol, the impact that it is having on our democracy in general. Um, you know, these efforts to discredit the election, um, you know, starting, uh, you know, with Donald Trump even before Election Day, you know, eventually led to 60-plus bailed lawsuits um, and culminated in his supporters attacking the Capitol uh, on January 6th. Um, but now what we're seeing um, with a little bit more time added is in an effort to address voter fraud and address the concerns um, that were created by these baseless claims, many state legislatures are pushing uh, voter suppression legislation that is going to make it more difficult for Americans to be able to cast a ballot. Now, we're going to get into that in just a second. I want to raise one more thing with you in this area. And it seems to me that we have, based on your last answer, there are two issues at play, and I'd like to have you address both. One, based on the data, voter fraud is a myth, but at the same time, voter suppression is real. Absolutely. Um, we, we know that voter fraud is vanishingly rare. Um, you know, going back to the 2016 election, um, you know, following, following that election, even though Donald Trump had won the presidency and won the Electoral College, he had lost the popular vote by 2.9 million votes. Um, uh, however, uh, you know, faced with questions about not winning the popular vote, he made claims that three to five million non-citizens cast ballots in the 2016 election. Um, as a result of that, they put together a presidential commission on election integrity in order to research the, the topic of voter fraud. Um, without surprise, the commission disbanded without producing any findings of voter fraud. Um, however, on the flip side, we do know that voter suppression is real and, and the impacts of um you know, voter ID laws, cuts to early voting, making the registration process more difficult, not allowing individuals to cast a ballot by mail, have a real impact on turnout and uh, make it so uh, many more people are not able to participate in in uh, our government. I want, I want to raise, uh, you, you just touched on it, I want to come back to, I want to raise two issues with you. One, um, seemingly benign, uh, emphasis on seemingly, and the other is uh, mo uh, more malignant. And the first one is, so um, let's say I, I, if someone says to you, you know, I have a driver's license, what's wrong with mandating that everyone have a valid form of identification? How, what's the problem with that? That seems rather benign. Your response? Um, not necessarily everyone has identification. Um, you know, one of my co-workers, uh, Molly McGrath, um, did a lot of great work, um, you know, prior to coming to ACLU and, and working elsewhere and helping uh, folks who did not have ID uh, obtain uh, ID in, in Wisconsin and in different parts of the country. Um, and so much of what she found is that 
many parts of the elderly population uh, did not have the proper ID to vote. Uh, many folks who are indigent um, do not have uh, the proper ID to vote. Um, and then also, you know, depending on the, the ID qualifications in a state, um, it's oftentimes difficult uh, for younger voters and folks who are more transient if um, there is a requirement that your state issue ID be issued by the, the state that you're voting in or that uh, your address match where you're registered to vote. Um, or, you know, if there, you, know, you, you have the possibility of providing something like a student issue ID um, that's provided by your college. Hmm. Uh, now, th- that's the, the benign side. Let's move to the, the, more, <laughs> the more malignant aspect of uh, these voter fraud accusations. Is it acceptable because when we hear the image of voter fraud, there's a certain individual that comes to mind, invariably uh, black and brown people. And, 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 is that, and, and is that driving this in the fear of the very real cha- changing demographics? So I, I think it's impossible to look at, um, you know, the, the, the accusations of voter fraud uh, from the 2020 election and disentangle it from a conversation about race. Um, primarily, the the cities that were uh, accused of voter fraud were primarily uh, black cities. So um, there were accusations of fraud in Atlanta, Philadelphia, um, and uh, Milwaukee, Detroit. Um, those were the areas of focus where um those who were claiming that voter fraud occurred were suggesting that it was coming from black cities. So I think um, it's, in, it's impossible to really disentangle uh, the conversation of race from the conversation about voter fraud. Yeah, and, and, and that, uh, unfortunately, as, as we begin this conversation talking about sort of America's uh, history with uh, voter suppression tactics, uh, I mean, that really goes back, what you, your last answer goes back to the nation's inception in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, as soon as black men had the right to vote uh, in, in 1870, it came under attack. Um, and, um, you know, voter fraud has been used as an argument, um, not just uh, for black voters, um, but, um, you know, concerns for uh, women voting in 1920. Many of the pushback there um, was uh you know, a belief amongst many of the opponents that women wouldn't be able to cast a ballot uh, without consulting males or their husbands. Um, and, you know, same concerns were brought up uh, for former slaves as the discussion around the 15th Amendment. Um, and even concerns around the 26th Amendment, uh, dropping the, the voting age uh, from, you know, to 18 in order for individuals to be able to cast a ballot was also addressed with concerns about fraud of, um, you know, individuals being um, you know, persuade, too persuadable from others. If you're just joining us, I'm uh, joined by Bobby Hoffman. Hoffman is uh, Deputy Director of Democracy Division at the ACLU. Uh, and Bobby, let, let, let's talk about the Supreme Court's 2013 ruling, um, Shelby County versus Holder. Um, what what did this ruling do, and what was the uh, subsequent impact? 
Yeah, so as part of the Voting Rights Act of, of 1965, um, there was a section, uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, that required certain states um, that were um, covered and had a history of um, of discriminating against racial and language minorities uh, in regard to voting laws um, had to seek um, what was called preclearance um, through either the Department of Justice or uh, or the federal courts in order to pass uh, changes to uh, election law or election procedures. Um, so as part of, you know, even a, a minor change like moving a polling location or a major change um, like creating early vote or um, passing a photo ID law, um, they had to go to the federal government um, and, uh, you know, seek preclearance. So the, the federal government would look at a law and see if it was going to have a negative impact on voters of color. Uh, if it had a negative impact on voters of color, uh, the law would not be able to go into effect. Um, what happened in the 2013 case, uh, Shelby County v. Holder, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court looked at um, the, uh, the coverage formula, which decided which states uh, would have to go through preclearance and, uh, you know, seek requests from the federal government before putting uh, election law changes in place. Um, and the 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 U.S. Supreme Court had decided that that coverage formula was outdated and uh, no longer kind of reflective of of the country as a whole because uh, what they had done was looked at. Uh, turnout rates uh, throughout much of the South that was covered by the coverage formula and saw that black voter turnout uh, was, um, you know, relatively close to white voter turnout and in some states higher uh, in terms of percentages. So um, with that in mind, and, <laughs> I, you know, really, um, even though there was, uh, you know, pushback in the dissent from Ruth Bader Ginsburg stating that uh, this is like removing an umbrella during a rainstorm. Um, the Supreme Court uh, decided that the coverage formula was unconstitutional and needed to be rewritten by Congress, um, and it ended Section 5 preclearance. What happened immediately after uh, was uh, states like Texas and North Carolina began immediately making changes to their election laws and passing laws that made it more difficult for black voters to cast the ballot. So um, in Texas, uh, they immediately passed a restrictive photo ID law. In North Carolina, they made numerous changes um, to their election laws, cutting early voting, doing away with uh, pre for 16 and 18, you know, individuals who were 16 to 18, making it more difficult uh, for individuals to, to register to vote in general, um, putting strict photo ID law. Um, so immediately after that decision in 2013, uh, we saw attacks coming from state legislatures that were previously covered by Section 5. Uh, in, that, in that context, would it be hyperbole to suggest that the voter suppression measures post-Shelby County decision in some ways, are, are, are even more pernicious because they're they sort of have the cover 
of so-called democracy. And even though many of the courts, as you mentioned, North Carolina, the Fourth Circuit, rejected many of those arguments, mm-hmm. it's, isn't it in some ways even more pernicious because it's sort of done under the guise of democracy? Well, I will say that it's, it's now more difficult to push back against uh, those laws because uh, they go into place and there's still an opportunity to litigate under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, but it is much more difficult, time-consuming, um, and um, you know it allows many of these laws to go into effect for numerous years before they can be struck down from courts um, after they're found to uh, you know show a, a result of discrimination against racial and language minorities. Hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the, the, the current actions. Uh, we, we had uh, a 2020 election where we've had the highest turnout since 1900. Um, and you talking about Shelby County, you said immediately after the ruling, and it was it was almost immediately that state legislatures took action. Um, what what they say is to address voter, voter irregularities. Some might say it's voter fraud. Talk about some of these specific states and some of the actions they've taken um, post the 2020 election. Um, post the 2020 election. Well, first I'll say that. Um, there's a lot of good to, to say about the, the 2020 election itself. Um, it was incredibly successful. You had mentioned the high turnout rate. It, you know, the, the turnout rate in the 2020 election was seven percentage points higher. It was administered during a global pandemic. We saw businesses, nonprofits, governments, elected officials really come together to recruit poll workers and make sure that voters had accurate information. Um, you know, and, and even like throughout the country, we saw state legislators, governors, election administrators take action uh, to ensure that more voters would be able to cast a ballot safely. Um, so there was, you know, a lot to celebrate about the election. Um, but yes, now that we're, we're, that we're um, past the election itself, we're seeing a lot of voter suppression bills come up in, in state legislatures. Um the Brennan Center for Justice, which does a lot of bill tracking on, on voter suppression, um, has uh, has tracked over 250 bills restricting access in 43 states. Um, I think as I'm looking through these bills, you know, I see uh, you know three three really like standout bills that are that are there. The first is restrictions to vote by mail. Um, second is voter purges, and and Third is stricter voter ID requirements. I think for voter purges and ID requirements, you know, these are the types of um, unnecessary barriers to the ballot that we've seen previously. Um, but before this legislative session, um, vote by mail was an area where we often saw bipartisan support uh, for legislation, um, and it appears to no longer be the case, unfortunately. Um but, you know, prior to this year, we had, um, you know, 34 states offer um, no excuse absentee uh, balloting and uh, numerous states. Uh, you know, I think we have four or five, uh, including Washington, Oregon, uh, Utah, Colorado, that sent a ballot to every registered voter as part of the election administration process. Um, so, you know, before this session, we saw. Um, you know, a great expansion in vote by mail, and it had gained a lot of popularity amongst voters over the past um, 20 years or so. Um, 
And unfortunately, now we're seeing the pendulum swing back um, following the success of the 2020 election. Um, and we're seeing many, many states uh, uh, introducing legislation that will make it much more difficult for folks to, to register and cast a ballot by mail. Now, some of these things we, we, we sort of touched on earlier um, may seem to a lot of people as benign, but if you take a state like, say, Arizona or Georgia, who, who put some mm-hmm. of these bills, if you can swing, you know, what, 3,000, 4,000 votes, you can, swing, you can swing a statewide election. Is that, would that be accurate? Yes, um, and and it's why uh, you know many of these changes. While um, it may not impact a great amount of people, um, it, the impact of it still could be tremendous in terms of the outcomes of elections and uh, the impact on public policy because of the outcomes of those elections. Um, so um, you know, while some of these uh, policies, while um, you know, may seem minuscule to to folks um, on the outside. Um, you know, small things like um, you know requiring a witness signature on on a ballot. Um, you know, a certain percentage of people will um, will be unable to obtain a witness signature, or um, may not return their ballot because uh, you know they had forgot to bring it for for someone else to sign as they were filling out the ballot, um, or they'll send it in without it being signed. And a small enough percentage of individuals may not, you know, or may have their ballot rejected because of that witness signature, uh, that it could flip the outcome of an election. And, and somehow, the, I mean, you mentioned, the, you know, the witness signature, but just over time, I mean, I don't, everybody's signature evolves over time. So if a signature doesn't mm-hmm. match, that could throw a number of people off, Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and one of the things that we've been advocating for in state legislatures is to make sure that there's a process in place that if an individual um, has their ballot rejected, that there must be some sort of due process put in place that election administrators are reaching out to them and giving them time to come in and fix an error um, or um, prove um, that they are the individual who filled out the ballot Um Oftentimes, this is quite simple, that an individual can come in, uh, <laughs> it's like show, um, you know, some form of identification, whether it's a utility bill or, um, uh, or a driver's license, and be able to show, yes, this was my ballot, uh, this is my signature, and then the ballot will be counted as part of the post-election process. And, and, and just uh, to further that conversation, earlier you, we, we, when, we, when I asked you about um, voter ID and you talked about some people being transient, some of these mm-hmm. bills could be very pernicious on, on, on transient populations. Yes. Um, you know, particularly, I think, um, you know, there are uh, ways in which to address that within, within states. Um, I think maybe one of the best ways is through a, a technique called portable registration um, oftentimes what happens for individuals is they move from one location to another, um, you know, even within a city or county or state, um, and then are unable to, uh, cast a ballot on election day because they didn't re-register at a new address. Um, and, uh, through portable registration, um, or opportunities for election day registration, uh, individuals would not be negatively impacted by, uh, you know, simply moving in between elections and failing to re-register to vote at their new address. Mm-hmm. Um, 
some of these some of these bills uh, will probably uh, undergo a court challenge, and I'm wondering, are, are you concerned? Um, that the Supreme Court in 2021 is more conservative than the one that ruled in Shelby County, will find many of these um, voter suppression uh, efforts amenable? Uh, Yes, I don't don't think many would uh, stretch to argue that the Supreme Court um, will be strengthening voting rights. Um, I think one case that... Um, was just before the Supreme Court this week um, is uh, Bernovich versus the Democratic National Committee. Um, what uh, what that case will be discussing and, and had oral argument earlier this week is the impact of uh, Arizona's out-of-precinct policy um, so that when individuals cast a ballot, uh, you know, I've just spoken about transient voters, um, if an individual in Arizona shows up to the incorrect precinct uh, and cast a ballot, the entirety of their ballot isn't counted. Um, and that's being um, being challenged under Section 2 of, of the Voting Rights Act, um, as well as a law restricting uh, the assistance of voters uh, who are delivering absentee ballots for others. Um, and I think this case will be really interesting um, to see how this court will determine the scope and the impact of uh, of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and maybe a good indicator of how they are going to treat future voting rights cases. In, in that case you just mentioned, I, I was actually struck uh, by comments by uh, attorney um, Michael Carvin um, when asked by Justice Amy Coney Barrett why the Republican Party had an interest in protecting laws which lower courts had already found unfair to minorities, um, he stated, and I'm actually, and I'm quoting this: uh, "It would put us Republicans at a competitive disadvantage with Democrats. If the issue is alleged voter fraud, how does a competitive disadvantage politically play into this equation?" Yeah, I felt, I felt like that was a very honest answer, um, and I, I think as part of that, he said that politics is a zero-sum game. Um, so, you know, I think it was very telling as to why um, these types of, of laws are, are being put in place, and it's to restrict access to the ballot um, rather than simply address uh, concerns of voter fraud. Uh, um, moving along, what, what is H.R. Uh, 1 and what is it designed to do? Um, so H.R. 1 is a is a piece of legislation that was um, introduced and passed the last session and also brought forward this session and passed earlier this week um, that will do a, um, a variety of great things um, in regard to election administration um, in our country that the ACLU is very supportive of, um, you know, including limiting voter purges, uh, providing access to early vote, allowing individuals um, to uh, register and cast a ballot on election day, um, providing an opportunity for online voter registration, um, and, and, and many more things that will, you know, expand access to the ballot, um, you know, through the process of registration um, and casting a ballot on election day. Now, uh, what, are, what, are, what are the contrarian arguments to H.R. 1? 
not 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 whether they're legitimate or not, or just what are the contrarian arguments. <laughs> well, I will, I will say that the HLU is very supportive of of these aspects of of HR one, where um, I think concerns come from from others in regard to the election administration components of HR one are the concerns that um, uh, it takes it is. Uh, federal overreach into what are typically, uh, you know, election administration that's done at the state and local level, um, because it would be Congress deciding um, that uh, election day registration is available uh, for elections or that um, early voting will be put in place. Um, So there are concerns on that front, but then uh, many also kind of uh, dip back into the concerns of voter fraud um, in regard to these policies, even though they are not based in fact. Um, just just for, 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 for my clarification and, and those who may be listening, um, so you only have to claim voter fraud. You don't have to, there's no burden to prove whether or not it actually exists. Is that, is that, has that been the process? Yes, I, <laughs> the unfortunate logic um, that is that is put in place behind pushing um, these these pieces of legislation has been that concern has been created. Uh, you know, in this case, um, recently, uh, concern around election fraud was uh, created by Donald Trump and many of his supporters that were base you know baseless. Um, and now uh, that that current concern exists amongst many in the electorate, um, they are using it as a reason and a need to address um, and address voter fraud and make uh, elections more restrictive. And just, I just one more question before before we let you go. Uh, when you mentioned Shelby County and you explained um, the the opinion, what I took from that was. It's working, ergo, it's unconstitutional. Did I miss something there? Well, uh, well, in the in the dissent, um, in, in from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg had written that this is uh, like removing an umbrella during a rainstorm. Um, so, in in her dissent, she was making it very clear that these laws were working, and that's why um, you know having pre clearance in place is why. Uh, we saw an increase in, in voter turnout amongst black voters throughout the South, uh, you know, throughout the course of having Section 5 in place. Now that we've removed Section 5, um, that is no longer a guarantee, and we're seeing um, restrictive laws go into place. Um, and the logic that was used by the majority in in uh, Shelby County was that um, the the country is no longer the place that it was in 1965. Uh, that progress has been made uh, throughout the throughout the South and other parts of the nation. And to show that progress, uh, they look to uh, the increase in turnout among Black voters um, in recent elections. Uh, well, I'm sure um, this will not be the last time we have you back for uh, to discuss. Um, uh, issues of voting. I, I have a feeling there's going to be more legislation than less. Bobby Hoffman, ACLU, thank you, sir, for joining us today on the Public Rally. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, Brian. Have a great day. Stay tuned as we continue the conversation on voting suppression with William Roberts from the Center for American Progress. <laughs> 
Welcome back. I'm now joined by William Roberts. Roberts is the Managing Director for Democracy and Government Reform at the Center for American Progress. William Roberts, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks for having me. Mm. Uh, recently, uh, former Vice President Mike Pence uh, penned an op-ed for the conservative think tank, the Heritage Foundation, and he claimed that H.R. 1 bans voter ID from coast to coast. He suggested that it would add millions of illegal immigrants to the voter rolls. And Pence also wrote that states would be required to count every mail-in vote that arrives up to 10 days after the election. Now, the first two he cited were patently false. And the claim about mail-in ballots is at best misleading. My question, sir, how do you explain how these canards, as well as others, continue to have traction in the public discourse around voter fraud? That, that's a really good question. Um, you know, the, the Pence op-ed, in my view, was just another continuation of um, the tree that has become the Trump big election lie. Um, so we went from you know, the end of the 2020 election to uh, Trump and Pence and their ilk um, putting out the big lie, uh, which, of course, we know helped to sow the seeds of that January 6th attack on the Capitol, um, a domestic terror attack. But um, this is just a this is just a new form of that and attacking what is actually a bill designed to expand democracy by feeding a lie that it is contracting democracy by helping us sow a conspiracy theory, you know, as, as you said, uh, canard is a good word for it. I mean, um, you know, HR one, uh, the, um, um, is a, a, a massive pro democracy bill, um, for the people I, um, that has a bunch of provisions about anti-corruption, uh, increasing voting rights, ending partisan gerrymandering. And unfortunately, um, Pence and other uh, conservatives in the Republican Party, you see it going out in the states, have decided um, that the best tactic that they have to win future elections is to curtail people's right to vote. Uh, Pence also, uh, he began in that piece, rather, uh, quote, after an election marked by significant voting irregularities in numerous instances of officials setting aside state election law, I share the concerns of millions of Americans about the integrity of the 2020 election. Would another way to state Pence's um, opening, uh, restate Pence's opening statement, quote, this is, this is me, I support the proven falsehoods that inspired the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th to do me harm. Would that be fair? Uh, that'd be fair for me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, look, the, this notion about um, voter fraud has been um, perpetuated for a long, a long time um, in conservative circles. We can't give um, Donald Trump and Mike Pence all the credit for that. But what we can do um, is give them credit, as you're saying, for weaponizing it, um, uh, leading into the, the attack on the on the six, but you know, I mean, if people are paying attention to just the facts of what happened, um, Donald Trump and the Trump campaign, Republicans across um, many states lodged lots of legal challenges um, in courts across the country. Some um, challenges even went before judges appointed by Donald Trump and ran through in the previous Republican Senate. Um, some 63, I think, times they lost. Um, and so this notion that 
there's this pervasive voter fraud that no one has found out about it, and only um, the Mike Pence's of the world have the secret formula for how to fix it. And the way to fix it is, in fact, by curtailing people's rights to vote, as you said, is just false. <laughs> it's, it's patently false. Uh, given your last answer, I mean, that seems to be a really high price that one is willing to pay to derail democracy. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it, it is. And, you know, it, it's uh, it's a, a sad commentary on, um, you know, where one major political party, let's just say, and a faction of, of, of conservatives, because certainly it's not every Republican, right, but it's the majority of um, the um, Republican Party. You see it um, in the conversation that happened at um, CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference that happened, uh, where they had the golden idol of Trump. Um, you know, you see it in just the words of these Republican state lawmakers from Georgia to Iowa to Arizona that are right now um, working on new voter suppression <laughs> laws that they're trying to push through their states because they don't like the results of the 2020 election. Um and it is, it just boils down to the fact that, um, they have decided to bargain democracy, broad democracy, um, in order to make sure that to, to try to build in, um, a competitive advantage for, for their party. And in many states, some of the things that they're doing, um, in terms of whether it's curtailing mail-in ballots or access to automatic voter registration at the DMV, like just regular, democracy things, they're going to hurt Republican voters also. And the, the, you know, one of the things that is um, so wild is that they're not even concerned about the collateral damage that it's going to do to their voters, quote unquote, their voters, people who vote for them um, consistently, because at the end of the day, they're just trying to grab the power. Um, and it is, it is a really sad and shameful commentary on the way that they view um, our democratic process. Well, uh, before we had you on, we just had uh, Bobby Hoffman from the ACLU on. I'm going to pose a similar question that I posed to him. Now, I'd like to have you respond to it because earlier this week, that uh, before the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett asked uh, Attorney Michael Carvin why why the Republican Party was interested in protecting laws that lower courts had already thrown out that said it was unfair to minorities. And he said that it would put us Republicans at a com uh, competitive disadvantage. Um, in that brief moment of candor, uh, uh, mm -hmm. Carvin sort of says what you just said, what the issues were. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but he just did mm -hmm. it in front of the Supreme Court. Your thoughts? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was uh, <laughs> it was an accidental moment of honesty, wasn't it? Before <laughs> before the Supreme Court, and that's what it boils down to. You know, you hear. Um, as I said, all kinds of um, uh, GOP and conservative officials at the state level and at the national level, um, you know, sort of crying foul, uh, you know, with the big lie and these subsequent lies about, as you said, as you said up top, um, you know, about, um, you know, uh, people who aren't supposed to be voting, being allowed to vote and all kinds of wild accusations of fraud beneath all of that. You hear more and more actually people just telling the truth that this is about um, ensuring that what happened in 2020 doesn't happen again, right? And in, in, you see in swing states like Wisconsin, where they're trying to um, 
change how they do uh, state Supreme Court elections, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, actually. Um, you know, you see it in uh, Arizona where they're trying to tweak, um, trying to make your, your vote like use or lose um, so that you you're you have to <laughs> you get kicked off the rolls if you don't vote in an election. Um, you know, in Iowa, they're trying to change absentee absentee ballot rules and what you do at polling places. And everybody, I think, has heard all about, all about what's going down um, in Georgia. Um, just the, the litany of ways that they are really trying to very nakedly disenfranchise people, um, all in the name of not suffering another defeat um, in twenty as they did in twenty twenty. And so I think you know. Part of this is probably because of the nature of where our politics are, uh, you know, in the at the end of the Trump era. Um, hopefully we're near the end of the Trump era. But, you know, where uh, Donald Trump um, famously liked to say the quiet parts out loud. Right. And we would be we'd say, oh, you, you just heard what he said. Right. Sort of the um, the proud boy stand back, stand by kind of comment. Like you're saying the quiet part out loud. We used to say to to conservatives and Republicans, and that's happening here, that they are just saying, listen, we're doing this because we're losing. And the, the way that we see um, the way that we see our ability to get a competitive advantage in this in this democratic process is to make sure that your folks don't come out. Right. The 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 paradigm um, that people uh, for a long time in political science and politics have been studying is, you know, the view of a lot of conservatives that if you tamp down voter turnout, they do better in elections. Um, that's a really perverse uh, way to view American democracy, I think, for a major political party to say the way we've got to win this thing is not about making sure that our party platform is speaking actually to the needs of the American people, not making sure in the post-Trump era that we are detaching ourselves from the ugliness and the vitriol and the racism, but to say... The way that we're going to win is to make sure that less of you can vote. Um, and that's where we are, unfortunately. That's why we got to keep fighting, fighting against it and fighting for things like H.R. 1 and also um, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which would restore uh, Section 5 of the um, the uh, the Voting Rights Act. And so uh, that's the fight that we're in. Well, listen to your last answer. You made me think of, of my uh, late grandmother who used to say, what they mad about ain't what they mad about. And mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. is the use, so my question to you, is the use of fear and and racist undertones because, I mean, let's, let's be honest, it, it, it is this fear that, that black and brown people are somehow engaged in these irregularities. That's why they're believable by mm -hmm. some. Um, mm -hmm. under the guise of voter irregularities, is this just a shield to mask the reality of one political party in, in, in decline? You know, I, I think so. Um, I mean, you know, for, for very many years, um, the playbook of the Republican party and, you know, lots of conservatives in terms of dividing and making, as you said, black and brown Folks in this country, the proverbial boogeymen, you know, the, the scary folks that are going to do, you know, election fraud and irregularities. Part of that strategy is to say to um, people who might otherwise be part of a, you know, a multi-ethnic, multi-racial coalition around uh, the economic issues or other populist issues to say that these people who are the other are your enemy. And we are not right. And it's, it's kind of, you know, it, it, people will be, of course, 
picking apart and examining the rise to the presidency of Donald Trump forever. But part of, you know, what he did was to use that fear, as you're saying, um, you know, as soon as he came down that golden escalator, right, um, started attacking people of Mexican descent um, and South American descent. But part of it is to use that fear um, that that lives in, you know, lots of people's hearts um, because of some because of racism that we know in, in this country, but some just because of implicit bias that they don't know they have. Right. Given some people the benefit of the doubt. But feeding on that fear to say that um, you're going to be better off on our side, even though our side is offering you nothing. But the fact that we're saying we're against the, the them, the other. Um, and it is really um, it is, as you say, I like the way that you frame the question. It's really a veneer to mask a party in decline, a party that, you know, that does not have like a core um, in terms of policy messaging, right? The This is not the same debate between, you know, progressives and conservatives on fiscal policy, or this is not the old, you know, hawks and the dove conversation about foreign policy and war. This is just a culture war. This is just about the browning of America, um, the you know, the multicultural, multiracial, multi, multi-ethnic society um, that we've been for a long time, but that is emerging full frontal, um, and about a party that would say to some folks, we can protect you from that, right? And so um, it is in very much, in a very real sense, a party in decline that is only now offering these, this race, this race, racial tension and culture war, um, you know, tactics because they have nothing else to offer. Well, I think it's, it's fair to say, and history certainly bears this out, uh, in the American narrative, race has always trumped class in terms of allegiance. Always. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, most of them are. Yes, and yes, and that's you know, and, and that's why you know that's race as a social. That's how how race has been able to thrive as a social construct, right? Um, because you are right that it is um, it is far it has been far easier, or at least far more productive for people to use um, uh, those racial arguments and push aside the class class structure and class issues um, to build power. Um, and so, but and and that's where we are, right? And so the question becomes. Um, with with Trump still hanging in the wings, and you know, with all the things we see going on in Congress, with the uh, you know the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, QAnon conspiracy theorists, folks who um, you know are just doing things that are beyond the pale. Um, that's that's where we are. We have one party who is, if you think about, it, is one party that is um, protecting um, conspiracy theorists and explaining away. Uh, a domestic terror attack, right? And we heard Christopher Ray, the FBI director, the other day testifying on Capitol Hill, declaring that um, what happened on January 6th was an act of um, domestic terrorism and talking about the threat of um, homegrown violent white nationalism. I mean, you have a party who's saying, don't listen to that. That's not true. Um, you know, some people are saying these people are patriots. Some people are saying, well, but what about, you know, some people are doing there. What about ism? What about Antifa? What about Nancy Pelosi? What, you know, and that's what their party is offering. Um, and it is, it's a really stark, um, a stark place that we find ourselves in. And it's almost, 
um, well, it's not almost, it is. We are on new footing um, after January 6th um, uh, because there's, it's a new reality. But, you know, there, uh, there's also been a lot written about how some on the right um, see, uh, see, see a necessity for political violence as part of, you know, our public discourse going into the future which should be unacceptable to most people, no matter where you fall on the ideological spectrum. And you know, as you just talking about alluding to the history of race and class, but we, we understand how political violence has been used and how that's been tied up with race um, to prevent people from voting for hundreds of years. And so, you know, brings, it brings it back full circle to um, the different ways that we are fighting old fights. Um, but there's an opportunity at least with, um, Democratic control of, of both houses of Congress and the White House um, to be able to get some of these things over the, over the finish line and at least enshrine some of these protections in law. Now, this is not, now this is not a plug uh, for, for the title of this broadcast, but how can there be a public morality when the most fundamental civic responsibility is consistently under attack? That's, you know, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think part of it is um, part of it is the fact that uh, we've got to reestablish the idea um, that not just uh, ethical leadership but moral leadership is important in our public offices, office holders, and in our in our public discourse. You know the. It is, and I, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to be Pollyanna-ish about it, but you know, we are really at a point where we are, we're not having public debates because you can't, you can't have a real debate. Not only can you not have a real debate without, um, you know, the same set of facts to talk about, but with the same set of um, moral and civic principles, you know, and so to that point about how to how you re- reestablish a a public morality, you know, on the other side of a domestic terrorist attack designed to stop Congress from counting votes, <laughs> um, uh, leadership through a lens of public morality would have been, you know, um, all members of Congress, uh, you know, what well, would have been, <laughs> excuse me, uh, uh, Republicans joining Democrats and decrying those attacks. And, you know, I, I, I keep getting, having this image, especially post the six of the days after 9-11, uh, when members of Congress in a bipartisan fashion stood on the, they were either on the steps of the Capitol or maybe on the steps of the Supreme Court, one of the one of the buildings on the, around the Capitol complex, and stood in the sun, they sung the um, the national anthem or America the Beautiful or something like that, and you know put aside feelings about um, about the 9/11 and what happened afterwards, but the fact being that um, as public representatives of all kinds of political stripes, they decided in a moment to come together, um, not only to show unity for the country, but I think to show, you know, some kind of, at least a moral, to attempt to at least show some kind of public morality to say, listen, our country was just attacked. Um, in that case, you know, uh, thousands of our, <laughs> our fellow citizens, um, were killed and thank, thankfully, thankfully, um, 
you know, um, I mean, this attack was horrible and there was loss of life, certainly with, you know, our Catholic police officers who were there to defend the Capitol and um, defend members of Congress. But as we're learning um, about the plans and the plots around that day, this could have been um, multitudes um, more deadly. And so, um, but I, I, I think the only proper response to your question, I think, is the only way to reestablish some public morality is to have public officials that believe in some kind of shared principles of what it means to represent their fellow citizens and what um, it means to come together collectively to do um, when you're in representative democracy. And so, you know, some of that is ethical, some of that's moral. Um, and we, you know, we don't even have, have that. I mean, you look at all this, the, the scandals continuing to come out of the previous administration. We just learned a few days ago about, you know, a scandal involving um, the previous Secretary of Transportation, who happens to be married to um, Senator Mitch McConnell, Secretary Elaine Chow, doing double dealing for her family's shipping company as she was, um, you know, uh, Secretary of Transportation. I mean, just the the lack of um, of alarm bells going off in people's heads about what is ethical and what is moral um, is kind of appalling. And so, you know, you can't, you can't rebuild that with legislation alone. Certainly legislation can help to, um, and, you know, rule, new rules can help to put back in place guardrails that were taken down. And that's so important. Right. Um, but, uh, you also need like people with changed hearts and minds. And Reverend, uh, you know, y'all are um, down there. You know, you hear from Reverend Barber all the time. I'm sure you know he talks all the time about um, this moral revolution that we need in this country, um, and how that needs to inform, you know, what we're doing on issues from healthcare to voting rights to housing, etc. Um, and so I just think I think that's what we need here. Some kind of moral revolution. Well, uh, you will uh, be working, unless you decide to leave, you'll be working at CAP for a long time, working on these democracy issues. I don't see them going away anytime soon. Will Roberts, Center for American Progress, I want to thank you, sir, for joining me today on The Public Around. Much appreciated. Great insight. Thanks for having me. It was great to talk with you. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Mm-hmm.